Testament, the Psalms are, are kind of splattered f- throughout, uh, just some written here, written, some written here, some written there, and they're combined together. So you have these first five books of the Bible. Those are the books of the law, the Pentateuch, let's say those together, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let's do it again, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So you have the uh, books of the law, those five books of the law, the divisions of the Old Testament, and then you have how many books of history? Twelve. Twelve books of history. And then you have five books of poetry or books of wisdom. And then you have the five major prophets. And then you have twelve minor prophets. And so that's the division. So you can remember, it's either five or twelve. And so you have the five books of the law, 12 books of history, five books of poetry or wisdom, five major prophets, and 12 minor prophets. Let's add in our memory here. If you want to look at them, you can look at page number three in your notes. Uh, This is the books of the Bible. Uh, As they're divided up there, I gave it to you when we did the introduction. But we just did the Pentateuch. uh, But let's start at Genesis, and then let's add the books of history down through Esther, okay? So we're going to say those together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. All right, so all your firsts and seconds are are there right together. If you start getting a grasp on some of the history, which is what we're trying to do in this Old Testament class, you start to be able to know kind of where the books are because of what happens in them and the history that took place over, over the time. Because you have the general history, the beginning, the patriarchal history, which deals with the establishment of the children of Israel, uh, their uh, exodus, uh, their captivity, and then exodus from uh, Egypt and their time in the wilderness and all of that. Then we begin here, the conquest, that begins with Joshua. That's their beginning into the promised land. So that begins there, Joshua. And we go through their conquest, taking over the promised land, and then uh, the judges, God establishing judges to rule over them. And you have judges, and the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. And then you have all your first and seconds together. The prophets come uh, before the kings. Uh, God gave them prophets, so the prophet first and second Samuel, and then first and second Kings, and then first and second Chronicles. And during that time frame is when, during the kingdoms and the divided kingdoms, when a lot of the uh, major and minor prophets, you know, your Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all those take place here, except for right at the end, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, right at the very end. So hopefully some of the context and historical will start coming together in your mind. And not only will you know the books of the Bible, but you'll know what they're talking about. So you'll know why it fits right there. Like why, it, why was this happening here? Because of what happened in the timeline of history. And so we wanted to give you the timeline in print form, uh, not blown up at all, but at least, you know, if you have a magnifying glass, you can read it or, or strong glasses. Um, so now we're turning to page number 20 in your notes. That's what we handed out today, 20 to 23. I'm trying to keep the notes that I hand you less than four pages uh, on, a, on a given week because that tends to be about as much as I could get through, and that's even trying to move, move quickly. And in your Bibles, we want to turn to Genesis chapter number 6. Uh, this is where uh, what takes place today uh, begins, and I did not put a lot of this in my notes, so I've got to be there myself. <clears throat> so, all right, so we're looking here, Genesis chapter number 6. 
Uh, just introduction here to this week's notes uh, after the creation, that formation period, that perfect environment where man and animal lived and dwelled together with God in harmony. Uh, Satan rose up in rebellion against God, and we know that his rebellion there happened sometime at the very beginning. We don't know exactly when in the time frame. We don't know it doesn't tell us, you know, this happened and then, and then Satan fell and then this happened. So we don't know exactly where, but we know sometime right in the beginning there, Satan rose up and, uh, you know, time frame, I don't, you know, we don't know how many years, but somewhere there. And then Adam and Eve were in the garden dwelling with God in perfect harmony. And we don't know the time frame between when they got in the garden and how long it was until they fell. Some people would be as short as, you know, nine or ten months. Uh, because it happened before their children came. Now, so it obviously couldn't have happened any faster than that, but we also, it could have been a number of years, probably not too many years, because obviously they would have started having children, and, but we don't know how many years. I mean, it, just we don't know. So there's, there's, you know, two, three years, four years, five years. We don't know exactly, but there was a time there where it was them in the garden with God, in harmony, dwelling together in unity. And then, of course, Satan uh, asked God, hey, uh, I kind of, in my mind, I picture the conversation between God and uh, Satan with regards to Job, where he had to come and ask, can I, can I afflict Job, you know, and have you considered him, God said, my prophet, you know, who is upright and eschews evil. Uh, but I, I consider maybe something like that, where Satan comes and says, hey, uh, this is your kingdom, but can I you know, tempt Eve and God knowing that he didn't want robots. He wanted men that loved him and, and followed him out of love, uh, you know, established for them one test. Man fails that test, sadly, uh, and plunges the human race into sin. God immediately tells of his plan to redeem men through the Messiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, through the Messiah. That's in Genesis chapter 315. Um, and Satan failing to stop God's plan of bringing the Messiah through Abel. We talked about this last week. Uh, he, God provides a second line, the line of Seth. And Satan determines, oh, well, I'm not going to kill Seth. You know what? I'm just going to corrupt the whole earth. And we see that corruption taking place and ultimately God's judgment on that with the worldwide flood. So we begin the notes this morning, the condition of man before the flood. We see, uh, Mary was giving me a hard time about this, uh, the dissension uh, of society. She's like, what is that? And she looked it up in her dictionary that she looked it up on, didn't have a good explanation. And I said, well, it means the expansion, just like the extension that extends something as something grows. That word means uh, the, the rapid expansion, but in multiple directions. It's, it's not just extension. You would think of an extension of something being one, like one direction out. It's extending. Uh, but this distinction goes in multiple directions, and I needed that because I needed a D. Okay, so you could just say expansion. That would be much easier, but uh, the expansion of society. So we have that, the rapid growth of society in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 1. So let me read that verse to you. Um, I was in 5 there. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, the... the uh, sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they had chosen. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. 
And it talks about the giants that were in the land. I'm not going to get into the, the debate about these giants. There are, if you're reading and do a little bit of study, there's some that believe that these giants that are described here, they believe the angels came down from heaven and uh, were with human women, and the offspring of that was very large beings, uh, giants. Uh, I, I personally don't believe that. I believe that we're talking about, if you read this in context and you do a little bit of study about angels, I believe it's talking about the combining of Seth's line with Cain's line, the holy line and the pure line, and it combined, those two combined, and it just so happens they had big kids. Uh, and obviously they had a lot of time to live and to grow and all of that during that time frame, but that's what, what I personally believe with regards to that. But we see the expansion of society here. There were 1,600 years that had passed from when Adam was kicked out of the garden uh, to the flood here. We see long life in ideal conditions lead to population expansion of, into the trillions. Uh, now, this is a number that I got from Henry Morris's study Bible. Uh, he said there that God had commanded Adam and Eve to multiply uh, with man and women enjoying, obviously right now, ladies have, what, 20 years of productive childbearing years, you know, uh, 20 to 40 maybe. I mean, maybe a little bit both directions. You know, you call it 30 years. You may call it 40 years if you want, but they're not going to be having children for 120 years. And so there's a big contrast here. Children, they could have children for a much, much longer period of time during this generation uh, here in the beginning of Genesis. And so he describes that for a little while, but he talks about if you take the childbearing years of those that were living six, seven, eight, nine hundred years, and uh, then just go on the current population increase of about 2%. If you take that 2% expansion over 1,600 years, it is an excess of 10 trillion people in the world. Um, now, <clears throat> I didn't do the math and can't confirm that. I'm just quoting Henry Morris' study Bible and what he's done. What we're saying is that there was a great expansion. There was a lot of people. We're not just talking about a couple hundred or even a few thousand. Uh, they grew and multiplied and filled the earth, the Bible says, and that is what is a fact. So with all of these people on earth, there's the demoralization of society. Now, do they have those notes? Yeah, I'm like told Andrew. I says, everybody's going to ask me, how do you spell demoralization <laughs> uh, of society? But it's on the screen, so you can, you can get it right there. Uh, that is the corruption of society, the complete and utter corruption uh, of society. We see uh, in verse number five in Genesis chapter six, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it was very, the corruption of man was just growing rapidly and uh, righteousness was on a decline. Man's heart was full of wickedness. Verse number five there. The wickedness of man's heart, imaginations and thoughts of his hearts were only evil continually. In uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, beloved, we're told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The fact of the matter is, is the unconverted heart of any one of us is capable of doing the vilest of sin. Uh, it, it's, it's only by the grace of God that we've grown and that we have been maybe saved from or kept from the most vilest of sin out there. And, and the heart of man is desperately wicked. So in this time period, 
you have that wicked heart of man just continuing down a path of sin and destruction. We see also a description of that time frame that the earth was full of violence. The earth was full of violence, Genesis 6, 11. The earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Can I tell you, beloved, that religion does not solve man's problem with violence because it doesn't change the heart of man. The heart is the corrupted thing. The heart of man is what's desperately wicked. The heart is what needs to be changed. And religion and turning over a new leaf doesn't solve man's heart problem. Uh, the heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. And so the heart needs to be fixed. And that's done through Jesus Christ. And for us as New Testament believers looking back on Jesus Christ when he gave himself. The fact of the matter is, is some of the most violent movements in all of history were motivated by religion. Uh, so the, the violence of man is not solved by religion, but by relationship with Jesus Christ. We see the last days of Noah, uh, that they, um, the last days are going to be like the days of Noah. Uh, you can see that in Luke 17. There's many other places that's mentioned, but mentioned here uh, as well. Men are corrupt uh, when you combine the uh, profane with the godly. In Genesis 6, verse number 4 there, he says, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So that's where the description I was telling you, they say, hey, the sons of God were angels, and the daughters of men uh, were the daughters of men, and they combined, and, and these giants came. I believe the sons of God would be the sons of Seth, the godly line through which Christ was going to come. The daughters of men would be the sons of Cain. And they bear children to them the same, became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So these mighty men came from the combining of these two nations. But, uh, you know, the corrupted line of Cain uh, and Satan's plan to try and destroy the line of Seth, to corrupt the whole earth, what he did is he got them to start to intermarry to start to dwell together. And uh, God has always wanted his people to be separate from the world. God has asked his people to be separate. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. And then we see ultimately then verse number 7, God's plan for the destruction of all living things because of the corruption of man. He says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things and fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. The, the corruption of man, God saw this utter chaos and corruption on earth, and he says, hey, I, the only way to solve this is to destroy it and start over. But we see in Genesis 6, 9, and 10 that there was a man that found grace in the eyes of God. Noah was to prepare for the coming flood. In Genesis 9 uh, and 10, he said, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now that's very important because when we get into history, we're going to see a little bit more about that. But I want you to know that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Noah found grace in the eyes of God, verse 6, 8 there. Uh, what, what, this is important because even before the law, all the way back here in the very beginning, God was a God of grace. God has always functioned inside the realm of grace with his people. Uh, and Noah experienced God's grace. The Bible tells us that he was a just man. That is, he was made just, that he had imputed righteousness given unto him because of his faith. 
And uh, that is seen over in the New Testament. But we also see that he was a perfect man. Uh, that means he was not without sin. It means that he was thoroughly furnished, to use a New Testament definition. Uh, in 2 Timothy there, it says they are thoroughly furnished uh, unto all good works. Uh, perfect man means mature and how he should be for God. So he was just. He was perfect. Noah had faith among a faithless generation. Amongst all those that were around him that weren't going to do right, Noah decided he was going to do right and follow the Lord anyway. We see that he was a member of the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, verse number 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of the things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he uh, condemned the world and became heirs of the righteousness, which is by faith. So we see here the foundation of his faith was the word of God. He was being warned of God. He, he had the word of God being warned of God. You and I have the word of God. And I could chase some trails here, but we got to keep moving in order to get through the lesson this morning. But the word of God, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So all the way back here in the New Te Old Testament, here at the, right at the beginning, we see that Noah's faith came from the word of God. He was warned of God and he had faith because being warned of God of things not seen. That sound like a description of something in the Bible? Faith is the substance. Yes. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. Noah didn't see rain. Noah didn't know what God was talking about when he said, hey, there's going to be a flood. Okay, Lord. Now, you and I would have a concept of what that means. We're like, we're, we're, on, we're on a hill here. We're probably okay from a pretty good flood. Occasionally, the river down here, if you drive the other way out of here, you'll see the bridge. And there's been times that the water got all the way up over that uh, deck of that bridge. And uh, water's flowing over the top of that and all kinds of trees and stuff stuck up against it and whatever. But it's not getting all the way up here. I mean, we're on top of the hill, you know. And so uh, Noah didn't have a concept or an idea of what God was saying, but he believed it because he had faith in God. So we see the form of his faith. The foundation of his faith was the word of God. Here's an outline for those of you that like to preach. The form of his faith, he was moved with fear. His faith took action. He began to do what he knew God wanted him to do. That's what faith is. Faith is obedience in action, doing what you are told to do, saying, moving on what God says. So he was moved with fear. Uh, he went to work. He did what God told him to do. Uh, he began to witness and preach the righteousness of God and, and repentance of men so that they could come to him. And then we see the fulfillment of his faith in uh, these are all from Hebrews chapter 11. I know you're not looking at that, but uh, Hebrews, the fulfillment of his faith, he became heirs of the righteousness, which is by faith, the fulfillment. He was rewarded and God will always reward the faithful. Those that have faith and trust him, he's not going to leave you high and dry. So we see, let her see here, uh, the compassion of God in sending the flood, even in God's judgment, even in God sending the flood and going to you know, judge the whole earth and destroy man completely. Yet even in that, we see his compassion. God continually pursues man. God continually pursues man from Adam and garden in the Eve, Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, when they were both there, uh, when they sinned, they didn't go looking for God. God went looking for them. Adam, where art thou? 
Adam, uh, he called Adam and said, hey, you guys are hiding from me. Why is that? And the Lord knew what happened, but they were out hiding and God pursued them. God pursues you and I from that day till now. God pursues man. God uses three lights in every man's life to draw him to him. These lights are the light of creation. We're not going to turn to these passages, but Romans chapter 1, 14, we know that, uh, you know, creation itself does say it's, it's creation. Just you, you can't behold the magnificence of creation and not stand in awe of an awesome God and understanding that something had to design and build and create this. And uh, so we see the light of creation. We see the light of conscience. We know that the law of God is written on the heart of man. And then we see the light of God's word. God has given us his word. And we know that God's word is, you know, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, So God is continually patient with men. Uh, Over and over we see God gave them 120 years to repent and turn to him. Uh, You know, if there was needed, anybody that would have repented could have repented and turned to God. 120 years they had. God held his judgment back for them to repent and turn to him. God's compassion, God's waiting all of that time for one of them to repent and turn. But there is an end to his patience because one day judgment is going to come. He's told him come, it was coming. Noah for 120 years preached it's going to rain. People mocked and laughed and made fun of him and uh, jeered him and his boys as they built this ark for, for what? You know, they probably thought they were, they were the biggest idiots. And what's mind-boggling, you know, you've seen the artist renderings and uh, the... Uh, pictures of how, you know, all of these animals coming to the ark and, and just, you know, marching in. And I don't know how God did it, but can you imagine all the people seeing all these animals just now all of a sudden randomly coming and filling up this ark, just like Noah said it was going to happen, and then people still not believing. They probably thought he somehow he's got a spell over these animals or something. Who knows what they were, uh, what, you know, scuttlebutt was going around about Noah and how he was filling the ark with all these animals. Uh, but they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him, even with that. So we see here God continued, continually provides a way of escape from that day till now. God wants to provide a way for man to escape. Uh, we see here the arks, the arks of Scripture. Ark means floating vessel. That's what ark really just means, the floating vessel that God had designed. So we see the ark of Noah, and I've given you the dimensions there, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, three stories and one window. Just some basic (laughs) information about it. But uh, there's been uh, obviously lots of debates and controversy as to, man, would even all of the animals fit in the ark? You know, all of the different species, there's thousands and thousands of different species of animals. They wouldn't even fit in the ark. Well, if you do the math, and I didn't do this math, but the Rye Study Bible, somebody that was working on the Rye Study Bible did the math, and they said uh, the carrying capacity of the ark is equal to 522 standard railroad cars. Each of these railroad cars could hold 240 sheep. So it's estimated, uh, well, here's the thing when you think about it, you know, they did not have to take a full-size dinosaur. You know, dinosaurs, they continue to grow as long as they're living. For their whole life, they keep on growing. Well, you don't have to take one that's 1,600 years old. You could take a baby. There's not really any reason to take one that weighs 4,500 pounds. You could take one that's 12 pounds, you know. And uh, then some animals, they could have actually taken in, you know, egg form that hadn't even hatched yet or whatever. So there's, they said the average animal probably on the ark was about the size of a sheep. 
And uh, so uh, if you take that and say, well, the average size was about a sheep, the size of a sheep, uh, each car could hold 240 sheep of the 522. It would only take 188 cars to hold 45,000 sheep-sized animals. Okay, so 45,000 different species. And, you know, you don't have to take every subset of the species. You don't have to take, you know, the lab and the labradoodle. You know, you don't have to get every subset. You can just take a dog. You know, you've got a male dog, female dog. You know, so uh, the subsets are going to start coming around again, you know. Uh, and so I don't know, like, how many subsets there were, but I'm just saying there's, you don't have to get every subset of species. And so really... Uh, even in the world today, it's estimated there's 17,600 different species of animals. They could have very easily fit those 17,000 in, into the ark, and they would have still had the equivalent of over 300 railroad cars to hold food and supplies and living space and all of that. Uh, and so certainly sufficient, the, the ark would have held everybody. And if you ever get the privilege to go down and see the ark encounter, uh, that will be very eye-opening for you. And I really enjoyed, I enjoy the engineering side of stuff, you know, seeing how, and some of the ideas about how they said they may have handled different things. I'm, I'm chasing rabbits, I don't have time to chase. Uh, but, you know, just how they got light in the ark and how they handled the water, like fresh water coming in to, to water all of the animals, and then how they got the waste out uh, from the animals and the food distribution and all those kind of things. You know, it was very interesting. And, of course, it's just people's ideas. Like, here's a way they could have done it, because uh, we don't know. But we do know that they were in an advanced society. You know, they weren't going to the moon, but uh, it was an advanced society. We don't know how advanced, but... Um, they certainly could have done many of these things. So we see that ark. Then we see there's the ark of bulrushes. This is in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 3. Uh, that is uh, um, Moses uh, in the ark, put in the ark and the bulrushes there and saved, uh, held by God. And then the ark of the covenant. These are some arks that are in the Bible that God used uh, to minister to his people. Now, all of these arks provided safety. There's only one way to escape judgment today, and that is through Christ ark. Now, there's only, I'm just going to give you a few comparisons. If I have time in the morning service this morning, I'm going to get into a little bit more, draw a bigger picture of the, the comparison between Jesus Christ and the ark, the, the typology that's present in there. Uh, the ark was designed to save, but here's a couple of them. There was only one ark and there's only one savior. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way to be saved. It's through Jesus Christ uh, and, and him alone. And the same thing, the ark was the way of salvation. They could have been saved if they would have gone and got in the ark, but they rejected it. The ark had only one door, and uh, there's only one way of salvation. Again, Jesus Christ, uh, I am the door. He is the door. He is the way. The entrance into the ark required faith. You had to have faith to go get into this ark and say, okay, uh, I believe that this is what I need to do. And the faith exercised in, in going and getting the ark would have saved them. Faith in Jesus Christ saves you. Um, the ark was sufficient and secure. All those that got in were saved all the way until they were delivered safely to the other side. The same salvation is safe and secure. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be safely delivered. Uh, 
to heaven uh, and ultimately uh, to be with the Lord. Okay, so God continues to preserve his righteous seed. And that's in your notes there. But you know, of course, that God wants to bring Christ through the line of Seth. And uh, you, if you follow the timeline down, you'll see that Noah comes in the line of Seth, that righteous individual, and God preserves that line so that it will continue and ultimately uh, Christ will come through that pure righteous line. So then we see number three here, the covering of the earth with the flood. Is there any questions? I'm moving quick. Got a lot to cover, but uh, all right. So the covering of the earth with the flood. Some Some false teachers will say that the earth was not completely covered, that it was regional floods, or they'll have other descriptions and try and find ways to explain away. You know what's mind-boggling is almost, almost every history in the world, from even, you, you take people in the back of the hills of Papua New Guinea, and you'll find recorded in the records of their history, sometime in the past that's been passed down, that there was a flood, something that destroyed the earth. And yet, people still want to deny that it happened. But everywhere in the world, people have recorded that this something, even though they don't have a Bible, they have something in their history that tells them there was a great flood and everybody, everybody passed or perished. And uh, so the Bible gives us this very clearly here. Uh, several things concerning the covering of the earth with the flood. First of all, God said that he was going to do it, and he did it. Genesis chapter 7 uh, looking at verse number four, he says, For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made I will destroy from off the face of the earth. And then in Genesis 7, verses 19 through 23, and he says, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. So he's t- he says, Hey, all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. The mountains were covered. Verse number 20. 21. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and of every man. So the description there is pretty detailed. It covered the whole earth up to 15 cubits above what was the highest hill during that time. Now, did we have Mount Ephraim during that time? I don't think so. I think that during this time you have moving of tectonic plates, uh, the eruption of land, the, the, the formation of mountains and things could happen uh, through this time, through the flood, through this massive moving of water. Uh, and so new land croppings and formations came uh, that weren't there before the flood. But the Bible's clear that the whole earth was covered. All living things died. If there was just local or regional floods, how did all living things die? Uh, so that, of course, is a false theory. Over 70% of the earth's surface is sedimentary rock. Now, sedimentary rock is formed by sediment settling through water. It's called hydrolock sorting. What the minerals and things are going to settle at a different pace through water. And so sedimentary rock is 
things that settled through the water at different layers. And you can see it. Very, if you cut away the ground and you can actually get a visual of the ground or they go do uh, soil samples and they drill straight down and they pull a tube out and you can see the different layers of sediment and how it settled down over time. 70% of the Earth's surface is sedimentary rock, which is formed underwater. So how did that happen? Uh, I'm not talking about, you know, the Earth is a lot of water. I'm not saying underwater, we know that, but 70% of the land mass in the world is sedimentary rock. Okay, these are just proofs of the flood. The fossil record supports the complete covering of the earth from marina fossils that have been found intact and complete all the way at the top of mountains. Like how did, how did a fossil from the ocean get preserved perfectly in, on the top of Everest? or other mountain ranges, and it's happened numerous, numerous times. Uh, whole fossils of many kinds of animals and uh, uh, plant life and things preserved together through time. So the fossil record supports the covering of the earth with the flood. Uh, the formation of land supports a worldwide flood, the current formation of land. And I mentioned this, but the force of water on the earth uh, cut great crevasses. I, you know, again, I get so frustrated with these. You know, you go to the Grand Canyon, they talk about how many billions of years this trickle of water um, ran through here and, and cut out the Grand Canyon. I mean, it could have happened in a, a day uh, during the flood. I mean, you, you watch uh, a, a dam break or watch a flood coming into a town and these huge, massive man-made structures are just swept away like nothing. And big, uh, you know, walls filled with concrete and uh, also the earth and the water comes through. It just cuts. It just cuts a path. It just cuts down into the ground and moves so much. And, and this could have been formed during that time very easily by the eruption of water from underground as well as the fermentation, the firmament falling down and it was a storm-like atmosphere. Uh, the, we could read the, de the descriptions here, but it was a storm-like atmosphere, very high winds and moving of a lot of water. Uh, so the formation of land supports this. Then there was a supernatural event. I'm sorry, this was a supernatural event that cannot and should not be tried to be explained by natural terms. We cannot just say, oh, well, this is how this happened. The problem with people many times is they try and take the miraculous of the word of God and define it or explain it by natural means, as if somehow giving it some natural explanation gives it authority. It has its authority without the natural explanation. And uh, we need to get back to just having faith and trusting the word of God that this is what God said. And so I believe it. So just a little information for you. Uh, Noah was in the ark uh, approximately 375 days. Uh, he, this is going to get a little detailed, but he entered the ark on the 10th day of the second month. This is, you can find this in the Bible. Sixth day of the second month in the 600th year of his life. And it rained and uh, began, it started seven days later on the 17th day of the second month in the 600th year. And then he left the ark on the 601st year, the second month of the 27th day. Now, if you want to look at those, the, the first dates I gave you are found in Genesis 7, 6 through 11. And the second dates when he was able to leave, Genesis 8, 13 through 14. So you could track that time and find out he was in the ark. I, you know, it only rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But all that water had to go somewhere. It took a little while to dissipate and, you know, go back into the oceans and evaporate into the sky. And so 375 days uh, he was in the ark. 
All right, so then we see lastly this morning the covenant of God against the flood. God gives a covenant, a promise that he's not going to flood the earth with a flood anymore. So God remembered Noah. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Uh, we see, and God remembered, Genesis 8, verses 1, and God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made the wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. So the water started to dissipate and fall. But the key thing here, I think, is note is that God remembered Noah. You see, God always remembers his own. He remembered the children of Israel, and it's described in Exodus 2.24, which I believe I gave you in your notes. But he remembered the children of Israel. God remembered the thief on the cross. And God remembered just Lot. If you, if you remember that, when God knew Lot was uh, in a wicked place and he shouldn't have been there. And, and, you know, for many would say, well, Lot should just be judged. He shouldn't be there anyway. But God remembered Lot and where he was and sent somebody to get him out to try and save him before he judged that wicked city. God remembers his own. But Noah remembered God. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 20 we see that, and Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. Noah remembered God. He built an altar before he built a home. He, he went to God, and, and this is an example for you and I to remember to put God first in our lives. Our, our observance and, and following after God should come before our trying to establish and. <clears throat> Many, many young people get this backwards and wrong. They think, well, once I get my home established, then I'll go serve God. Or once I, once I get the kids uh, settled down and maybe in preschool, then I'll have time and I'll go serve God. And Oh, wait, well, it's so busy. There's so many kids. And, and once I get the kids in school, well, then the kids will be in school and I'll be free and I can go serve God. And, and they're trying to get their life settled and everything situated and balanced before they go serve God. Listen, it's never going to get any easier. It's never going to get any easier. You know, uh, who was it that told me they're retired this week? Somebody in here we were talking this week. I can't remember who it was. They, they, they're telling me about how they got retired, and now they can work, uh, you know, 60 hours a week instead of 40. You know, and so some, some people feel like, uh, well, I'm retiring. And so now all of a sudden you're going to have all this time. But, you know, you find out there's still now there's more stuff to do because now you don't have to go to work and there's this has got to be done. And you also can't work quite as fast as you used to. I like what Rob says. He says, I'm so slow, it takes me an hour and a half to watch 60 minutes. <laughs> you know? uh, it's just, things are a little more difficult. I was talking to my mom here in the last couple of weeks, and she said, it's so frustrating because I used to be able to do this in half the time. And now it takes me twice as long to do the same thing. And that's just part of life. I'm just saying, listen, don't get it backwards. Serve God right now. Wherever you are, whatever age or stage of life you're in, serve God. Do what God wants you to do right now. Remember God. William Carey said, my business is preaching the gospel. I only cobble shoes to finance my business. People looked at him and said, oh, your business is, is a shoe cobbler and you have a shop and you make shoes. That's your business. He said, no, my business is preaching the gospel. And I make shoes to finance my business. And we need to make God's business our first business. God gave Noah some commands. We need to move quickly. It's already 1013. How does this happen? Man was spread over the whole earth, 9-1. Man was feared by animals. Man was allowed to eat meat. Don't, I could take time and talk about that, the change there. 9, chapter 4. <coughs> this is before the law. Uh, you know, in the garden, they didn't eat meat because there was no death. 
There was not the cycle of life. They were vegetarians in the garden because there was no death. God wouldn't have wanted them just killing animals. But now there was death. Animals were going to be dying. And God says, okay, you can eat this meat. But there's also there in Genesis 9 the command not to eat blood. And that command holds all the way till through, through creation and through now that, you know, you don't want to eat the raw blood. But you can eat meat, okay? And that's available to the Christian uh, today. And we're not going to go any further on that. We see capital punishment was instituted. I wish I had time to read these passages of Scripture. But uh, verses 5 and 6, chapter 9, 5 and 6. God knew that, you know, Cain killed Abel and th- that... Men were going to be corrupt and violent and there was going to be death. And so they, uh, he instituted capital punishment. God gave Noah a covenant, the covenant. And if I push my way through this, we're not going to have time to talk about this and how precious it is, and I'm already over. So why don't we close in prayer? We'll just finish this up and get into it next week. But we see God gave Noah a covenant, and we're going to talk next week about that covenant, the promise of the rainbow. As of last week, we were on the last point of, uh, you should be the bottom of page number 22 on your notes, uh, the covenant of God against the flood. We, we looked at that last week, just the fact that God remembered Noah. It's not that God had forgot Noah and then all of a sudden remembered. Uh, God doesn't forget, and God knows where his people are. The, the idea here is that this was a turning point in the story Uh, This was a defining moment where God said, okay, here's where we're at. This is the people. This is the person, the righteous person that I'm going to continue to build the the human race with. And so God implemented that at that time. We see that not only did God remember Noah, but Noah remembered God. We talked about that last week, putting God first in our lives. We want to try and do that. God gave Noah some commands. The first was to leave the ark in chapter 8, verse number 15. All right, I feel like a lot of clicking. Are we all together? We're good? Everybody's okay. We're going to try and move along. I, I was warned this morning, don't give us whiplash, Pastor. <laughs> like, don't, not too fast, you know. And I, I'm going to try not to do that, but I do have a lot of ground we want to try and cover. Uh, so he was given some commands to leave the ark. God is the one that instructed him to take this step, to, to go out, to leave the ark. And then he was given the command to be fruitful, to multiply and replenish the earth. Um, just want to see here how that uh, I have this written down for you, God, for you guys here. He was to spread over the whole earth is how I wrote it down for you. Um, and that's I, I wrote that specifically because that's where man failed and ultimately rebelled against God. They denied and rejected that command that God had given him, which we're going to see in the next lesson. But the entirety of the command was they were to be fruitful, multiply and replenish the earth. Man was to be feared by animals in chapter 9 and verse number 2. Again, we're not going to take time to turn to all of these references. They're there for you. You can look at it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's very likely that pre-flood, there was a much more uh, amenable relationship between man and animals. Uh, possibly this is one of the ways that the animals could exist in the ark without you know, destroying Noah and his family, those animals that today we could not be around. Uh, you know, obviously there was a the part of the curse that was given uh, back in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3, but you've got that idea that there was probably a period of time there where maybe it wasn't that bad, but definitely God makes it 
markedly notable. He says, hey, animals are going to be feared by man or man's going to fear animals. That relationship is no longer going to be uh, friendly. And it's interesting that God makes a point to say that at this point. Uh, then man was given the uh, approval or command here to be eat meat. You can eat meat. This uh, the cycle of life and animals were going to be dying. So God says, hey, you can eat meat. Uh, then um, let me just back up and answer a question that was answered last, asked me last week with regards to the fall and with Adam uh, and the garden. Uh, so when I was explaining and talking about the garden and talking about the fall, um, I was speaking quickly and stated that, hey, um, trying to think exactly what I said. I said something along the lines that, that Adam didn't have to work for his food. Now, I want you to know that work was not part of the curse, that it was very clear that God gave Adam the job, the responsibility to keep the garden. Uh, he had to work in the garden. There was responsibilities that God had given him. Work was never part of the curse, but the labor that it was going to take to get food after the curse was extensively uh, worse. A lot more effort was was going to need to be implemented. God had there in the garden fruit trees that were fully grown and ready to bear fruit. Uh, their bearing seasons were probably much longer than they are today. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And that, in, in respect of comparison, there was very little had to be done in order for Adam to get food in the garden as opposed to after the curse where just to eat, he had, now he had to be a hunter now he had to plant and, and hoe the weeds, and the effort was uh, tremendously uh, a lot more. But So he had to eat meat. That answers that question. Then uh, capital punishment was instituted uh, in verses 5 and 6. Uh, obviously, God knew uh, that man had a tendency to get angry and kill one another. And, uh, you know, under the age of conscience, the period of time where men were supposed to be governed by their conscience... Uh, man failed miserably. And so God said, we need to have some type, you know, government is supposed to step in when self-government fails. And that's really the only time it's supposed to step in. A problem with government today is they want to step in everywhere. And government's supposed to rule when self-government doesn't. And that's the way it was initially set up. That's what God designed or God planned. And uh, so capital punishment was instituted in verses 5 and 6 there. Uh, then God gave Noah a covenant. He made a prominent promise with him. Uh, and I want you to notice that this covenant that God made gave Adam and all of us, I'm sorry, Noah and all of us, is unmerited favor. They didn't go ask for it. They didn't seek after it. But God came and said, hey, I'm going to make a promise with you. Um, you can turn to Genesis chapter number nine. I want to read a couple of verses here just to show you this. In chapter nine, verse number nine, uh, and in verse number 11, and in verse number 12, notice how many times God uses the personal pronoun I. He says in nine, nine there, he says, and I... Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. In verse number 11, and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all the flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I 
make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. So this covenant of God, what I'm saying is it was God's unmerited favor on man. God said, hey, I'm no longer, never again going to destroy the earth by the flood, by a flood, and made this promise. It was something that God did. Now, God, of course, gave us the rainbow as a reminder of the promise, as a continual picture, a reminder of the promise that he would not do that. Every time you behold the rainbow in the sky, that is a, a uh, testimony of God and his promise to us that he wasn't going to do that. That carries uh, a lot of weight. God would never again destroy the, the world by a flood. Then God renewed the face of the earth. Psalms 104, verse number 30 tells us that after the flood, obviously, the shape of the earth was different. Uh, you know, plant life and all living things that were on land died. And so uh, that all had to be replenished. It all had to grow back. And from, from scratch, it had to grow. And so God, uh, by his spirit, renewed the face of the earth. It, it, he blessed it, and it prospered, and it grew very quickly uh, by the blessings of God and we saw that. It's notable, beloved, uh, you know, Andrew, why don't we go ahead and hang this up right now. It's notable that the um, average lifespan of man dropped by over 500 years uh, per person after the flood. So before the flood, the average lifespan was 810 years. And after the flood, it was average lifespan was 320. Now, I have here a, uh, another timeline for you to peruse. And uh, we want to... This is always hanging in the back hallway. The office hallway is right here past this door, cuts through the fellowship hall. This is hanging on the wall in there. If you want to look at it, it's been there for a couple of years. Uh, and so you can go look at this. Now, there are some dates on here that aren't perfectly lined up date-wise with what I've given you in your paper. That just depends on who you read after, but generally they're going to be pretty close. But this is a timeline showing men's life. Now look here, look at, look at this as their life. I mean, Noah, Adam, sorry, lived all the way to here. And you got Seth and Enoch and Cain and uh, Methuselah and Noah. See their lifespan, see how long they are? And then look how short the lifespan of man is. Immediately after the flood, which is this dark line right here, you can visually, you can see how much shorter it is, correct? You can see that? I just thought that was very neat to be able to see the change in lifespan immediately following the flood. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we get into our next lesson. Um, but it's notable there. Now, Noah shames himself in chapters 9, 20 through 23. Noah got drunk with wine and laid uncovered in his tent. You know, you get drunk, you're going to do something you would never do in a sober state. And uh, it's notable uh, that... This was not the sin of youth. This was not a prodigal son. Noah was around 600 years old at this time when he sinned. But that tells me that any one of us, regardless of how long we've been saved or regardless of where we're at in our life, that we could come to the place where we let our guard down and Satan comes in and tempts us to do wrong. Noah sinned here. Ham saw his nakedness and shames his father by calling his brothers to come and see it. Now, uh, in verse number 24, you'll see, he says in verse number 24, he says, And Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done unto him. Now, 
that's the extent of our Bible knowledge with regards to this sin. But there was, at the very least, they say the word saw is much greater than just having to observe, just having to have seen, um, but to look with desire. There's, at the very least, there is the sinful desire, the lustful passions of a man for another man, obviously even inside of their own family here. But then beyond that, uh, there's the implication that it's much worse than that. When Noah woke up and he's, he realized and he knew what his son had done to him, the scripture says. We don't know what that is, but we do know that this is what caused the curse that God put on uh, Ham and his descendants. Now, um, his brothers were called. They knew what was wrong. They came in. They backed into the tent uh, and covered their father's nakedness uh, without any further uh, sin. But they, they covered it, realizing that it was wrong. Now, when Noah wakes up and sees the problem, he curses Ham and he blesses Shem and Japheth. Um, now, it states specifically that the he's, he doesn't the curse isn't specifically stated to Ham. It says Cain is going to be cursed, and there's several different thoughts. It's possibly mentioned that way to show that it was not just Ham that was going to be cursed, but his descendants. Uh, it might also be specific to that descendant line because of who was involved. We don't know exactly, uh, but it, it states it that way. Now, obviously, Ham was going to have to watch uh, the suffering of his sons for the next generations. The descendants of Cain suffered for a very, very long time. Um, let me just say here, and I don't, I could, we could chase rabbit trails here for a long time, um, but let me say there's nothing in the Bible to support the false belief regarding uh, justified racism uh, because of this curse. There is and has been, and I could read you quotes from religious publications, uh, books put out by so-called Christians that would say that, uh, hey, Ham's descendants are to be lesser people because of the curse. This was never God's plan. This is not what God designed. This was uh, the whole idea of race, and we're going to talk about that more. The next one is actually a, uh, a philosophy that arose out of evolution. There's only one race. That's the human race. We are all created in the image of God. And so people's justification of racism uh, does not hold any water when you come to the Scripture. Okay, there are a couple very definitive things that go against man's a lot of beliefs about this. First of all, although we do know uh, generally and we have an idea of where these families went after they uh, parted ways in the next lesson we're going to get to, uh, we don't know 100%. So we could have something flipped in our mind. We say, oh, well, Rob's the one that's supposed to be judged because he was from that family. But in actuality, it was supposed to be Zach. We don't know 100% for sure that those two people aren't switched, but we have built an entire philosophy off of the fact that we believe it's him, and so he's the one that we're going to judge. God is the one that takes care of the curse. We're not supposed to be filling that out. We're not supposed to be meeting that, uh, you know, so that's one thing. We could have it incorrect, uh, even if you think you've got it right, but just want to make sure you understand that, because there are a lot of people that have believed that for a long time. And that is not biblical at all. Uh, Shem was given a spiritual blessing uh, in 926. We see that. Uh, he says, and he said, blessed be, it's notable, he says here, 
the Lord God of Shem. So this blessing is attributed to God. He's saying, hey, we want to bless God. He was not blessing Shem directly, but was giving a spiritual inheritance, a blessing from God, noting that God is, God is blessed and God is good. And uh, then uh, Japheth was given a physical blessing uh, to dwell in someone's tent is to share in their blessing, to uh, the idea of having their coast enlarged, and that's evident in when we see the nation's divisions here in our next chapter. Now, bringing this, this lesson to a conclusion, we see that Satan's goal to pervert the whole earth, all of creation, fell short because one family found grace in the eyes of God. Noah stood for righteousness in a perverse generation. God saved him. And uh, the rest of the earth was destroyed by the flood. And God's preservation of Noah and his family also preserved the line of Christ for when he would bring Christ into the world. So that brings the lesson with regards to the flood to a conclusion.